Do you ever have questions for God? Well, if you do, you're not alone. I think we all have questions for God. Questions about trials in our lives, about relationships, about chronic illness, about our children's salvation. We're in good company. Some of the faithful people of the Old Testament had questions. In the midst of trials, David had questions in Psalm 13. In fact, he asked five questions in just two verses. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Job had questions. He had lots of questions. The prophet Jeremiah had them. And as we're going to see today in Genesis 15, Abram, or Abraham, had two questions. Questions that, as it turns out, the Lord answers in eternally profound and significant ways. I've got to tell you, in your bulletins, it says I'm preaching on Genesis 1 to 6, this, 15 verses 1 to 6 this morning. I got to preparing and I couldn't stop. So we're going all the way to 21 today. So last time I preached about a month ago, I think I went 38 minutes. Today I might go 58 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. But we're, we're, we're tacking a little extra on there. Before we jump to Genesis 15, a little background and context is in order. As we come to Genesis 15, we've come through Genesis 3 to, through, 3 to 11. Through the flood, through the fall, through the Tower of Babel. In every case... From Genesis 3 to 11, we see a world that is happy to get along without God, without His sovereign leadership and without His fellowship. As a result, judgment has come upon the world from God. So as we came to Genesis 12, the world really isn't a hopeless situation. I mean, at least after the flood, there was Noah and his family. But after the Tower of Babel, there are no heroes of faith apparently on the scene. It's vacant. And God calls Abram, a pagan who lives in modern-day Iraq. And through the promises God makes to him, a major new stage in God's relationship with humankind begins. At the heart of this speech is God's desire to bless humanity. At the heart of the promises God gives. The word bless is used five times in these three verses at the beginning of Genesis 12. Listen to the promises of God from Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham has the promises of God, promises we often refer to as land, seed, or offspring, and blessing. The most important of these promises is the last one, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Now, to to, to bless all the families of the world through Abraham, Abraham's got to have offspring. And that's the point of contention as we come to Genesis 15. 
I do have an outline. It's six points, but in the interest of time, I'm going to give them to you as we go through the passage. Chapter 15 pivots around verse 6. Before verse 6, from verses 1 to 5, we have Abraham asking a question, and the Lord provides an answer. After verse 6, we have Abraham asking a second question, and once again, the Lord provides an answer. And as those of us who have been believers for a significant amount of time know, trusting in God can be a distressing ordeal particularly when things aren't going the way we anticipated that they would. Maybe not the way we'd hoped for. Or even we might not agree with the way God's doing things in our lives. So it is with Abraham. And as we will see, God will graciously provide assurance to Abraham with honest and ultimately comforting answers to his questions. Here we will see God's way of meeting Abraham's struggling faith with assurance. Point one, the struggle over God's promise, verses one to three. Verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 1 is a promise of protection. But it has us asking, what is Abram afraid of? From just verse 1, we don't know for sure what that is. But we do know for sure Abram is afraid of something. The fact that the Lord says this to his servant, fear not, shows that the God of heaven and earth knows that a large chunk of life is often beset by fear. Fear not, he says. But that's not enough assurance for Abram. He goes on to tell the Lord exactly what's causing him to fear in verses 2 and 3. Let's look at those. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What has Abraham concerned and fearful is the promise of God itself. There is tension and difficulty here, and it seems in Abram's question, it is the problem of time. You can almost hear the pleading in Abram's voice. What will you give me? For I continue childless. Remember, the promise back in Genesis 12 was that God is going to make Abram a great nation. Well, guess what? To have a great nation come from Abraham, he's got to have a son or kids at the very least. And at this point, it's been days, weeks, months, years, and nothing has changed for him. And according to the custom in the ancient world, one of his servants will be his heir. Abram says, look at me. You have not given me seed or offspring. And this servant in my household is going to be my heir. Abraham knows the promise from chapter 12. He knows that to be a great nation, 
he has to have descendants. And that's putting pressure on his faith. He's feeling the squeeze. God had made a sacred promise that blessing had come to the nations of the earth through him. And Abram wanted God's plan to get moving. And yet nothing is happening. Things are going on as they were. And Abram's faith is facing the passage of time as he gets older and older. And his wife, Sarah, is getting older and older too. Abraham is caught up with God's promises and he wants them. They are precious to him. He wants to be sure of them. But God hasn't acted on them yet. Abraham questions. Abraham has questions and he's bewildered and impatient. But he doesn't rebel against God. He's asking this question respectfully. Unbelief spits on promises and dismisses them. But faith ruminates on them and considers them. That brings us to point two. The illustration of assurance. The illustration of assurance in verses four and five. Verse four. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. The Lord's words in verse 4 are clarifying for Abram. But verse 5 makes more of an impact. In verse 5, God tells him to look to the heavens and count the stars. Notice in verse 5, you have a visible sign to go with the spoken word of verse 4. It's a reassurance and a re-emphasis of the promise. This is a matter of graphics rather than a matter of logic. There is nothing rational about the sign. But some, if not most of us, are visual learners. Evidently, Abraham is. You know the difference a visual presentation can make. A picture can be worth a thousand words. And so it is here. Keep in mind, the promise isn't any more certain because of the picture God has given Abraham in this matter. But it impresses Abraham in a fresh way. God doesn't mean to just express things. Rather, He means to impress things on our hearts. And that's what he's doing here with Abraham. He's making a visual impression. You might say to yourself, well, we are so much more sophisticated today about our faith as New Testament believers. We don't need these kinds of visual signs, visual aids. Well, our Lord thinks we do. What about the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper? What is Jesus doing for you when you come to the Lord's table? Jesus knows our faith can be a little wobbly. So he says, let me see if I can give you a picture. Look at that bread. Just as that bread nourishes your physical life, so I, 
as your crucified and risen Savior will never fail to nourish and sustain you spiritually no matter what the circumstances are. Do you see that wine? If I went that far for you, if I spilled my blood for you, does that not say to you, I will go to any length necessary to keep you as my own. You see, we still need pictures. We still need visual reminders. We need the pictures that Jesus gives us for assurance. He does not have you count the stars. He tells us to come to the table. So, to this point in our passage, we have Abram's struggle over the promise in verses 1 to 3. And then we have the Lord providing an illustration of assurance to Abraham in verses 4 and 5. That brings us to point 3, verse 6. The sufficiency of faith. Let's read verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And Abraham believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now let's pause just a little bit and contemplate something. This verse is not saying that verses 1 to 5 of Genesis 15 was the initial moment that Abram came to faith. Said another way, verses 1 to 5 are not recording Abram's conversion. But rather, verse 6 is a statement about Abraham's ongoing faith which characterizes his life since Genesis chapter 12. It encapsulates and sums up the whole prevailing attitude of Abraham from chapter 12 on. If you look at Hebrews 11 verse 8, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it for you. You will see Abraham came to faith when he was called in Ur of the Chaldeans. It reads, by faith, that is, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Notice the significance of Abraham's faith, which is recorded in the last half of verse 6. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Here the biblical author, under the, uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us why this believing stance of Abraham is so crucial. Verse 6 is looking beyond the basic characteristic of Abraham's faith. It is looking beyond the immediate context. It is fascinating that the surprising comment is inserted at this point in the text by the biblical author, who, by the way, is Moses. This is the first time we see this kind of statement, this kind of vocabulary in Genesis and thus in all the Bible. It's the first use of the verb believe in the Bible. It's the first use of the noun righteousness in the Bible. It's the first use of the verb to count or to credit in the Bible. At this point in biblical revelation, there has not been a statement like this before. This should shock us awake. This stance of faith brings about the counting or crediting of righteousness to someone who does not have it. This is imputed righteousness here in Genesis 15.6. In and of himself, Abraham 
is not righteous. He is not perfect. He is not holy. I'll let the wives decide. The way Abraham describes his wife Sarah as his sister, both before Pharaoh in chapter 12 and Abimelech in chapter 20, he does this so that they won't kill him and steal his wife. So basically, he passes her off to Pharaoh's harem in Genesis 12. Ladies, don't follow that advice if your husband gives it to you. It's unrighteous. Abraham is unrighteous. He's not a righteous man. But because of his faith, Abraham is counted as righteous by God. He's credited with righteousness by God. God gives Abram, an ungodly man, right standing with himself even though he doesn't deserve it. It's a gift of God based on faith. So what really matters here is God's gracious decision about Abram. There's overflow from this text. In Romans chapter 4, verse 22, where the Apostle Paul is speaking of Abraham's faith, he says this, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Did you hear that? The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. This verse from Genesis fifteen six touches you and me. It was written for us. It was on account of us. This didn't just happen 4,000 years ago. And it's just a relic that is found in the Old Testament history dump. It's not just an interesting story from the Old Testament. No. Verse 6 is, is in God's purpose and plan was written for us as believers today. This righteousness is offered to you through faith in Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. Let's step back to the first part of verse 6. And he believed the Lord, it says. This means Abram had faith in the promise of the Lord's word. But faith in the promise implies faith in the promiser, right? That faith in the Lord gave Abraham assurance. It takes great comfort and assurance. I take great comfort and assurance from the words of Jesus in John 6, 37 where he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast away. Jesus invites us to come to him. Jesus, the one whose righteousness is objectively imputed to you, has you by the hand, and he will not let you go. 
Be reminded of it every time you come to celebrate communion at the Lord's table. Jesus is with you. He's reminding you. Now we move to the last three points of the morning here. We're going to focus on Abraham's questions about the land now instead of his questions about his seed and his offspring. And what we will see is God's answer to faith seeking assurance. And that is in the form of a covenant. Point four, a promised home and a second question from Abram. Verse seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I think Abram is a little bit like Peter here. Okay, He just keeps asking questions. He's never quite satisfied. So the Lord in verse 7 restates his promise of a home for Abram's offspring. But like verse 1, Abraham isn't content with a general restatement of the promise. And in verse 8, like he did in verse 2, he asks a question asking for more specifics. Again, this is not a radical doubting, but he wants reassurance. It is not so much faith's weakness, but faith's wanting to know more. Abram is very interested in the promise, and his question is treated as a proper request by the Lord, not a rebellious one. How do we know that? Notice what happens in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, he, that is the Lord, said to him, that is Abram, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. How does Abram react when the Lord instructs him what to do? He's to get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. Well, Abram not only gets them, he prepares them and lays them out so they are ready for the next step. It seems Abram knows exactly what to do and what exactly is going to happen. You see, in the ancient world, This was a custom. You laid these animals out if you were going to make a mutual agreement in in relationship with someone else. You were to make a covenant. And the relationship aspect of a covenant is the most important part of it. And so Abram is aware of this kind of thing. Covenant is what God does when he wants to get formal about a promise. It's a kind of wrapper the Lord puts around the promises in order to help you believe it and be serious about it. It is often meant to be, as it is here in Genesis 15, a means to provide assurance to God's people regarding his promises. Now, some people like to play around with the definition of a divine covenant. And I like this particular definition. A divine covenant in the Bible is an oath-sworn, legally binding relationship 
enforced by God. Again, the fact that it's a relationship is most important. There are consequences attached to a covenant. There are blessings for keeping the covenant. And there are curses for violating it. So we see God enforces the covenants that he makes. Some covenants are unconditional and some are conditional. This covenant that we're speaking of here, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, is unconditional. As you're going to see, Abraham's going to be asleep. He doesn't make this covenant with God. In large part, the Abrahamic covenant is grounded in the promises of Genesis 12 that we've already looked at. It is an unconditional covenant. So it describes something God will accomplish without regard to human actions and responses. You're familiar with covenants in your everyday life. If you are married, you entered into a marriage covenant. If you bought a home in a certain neighborhood, you signed a covenant when you bought your house, specifying various rules you have to follow in order to live there. If you've taken out a loan, you've signed a covenant. The basic structure of the relationship God has established with his people in the Bible is covenantal. It is a covenant. Some covenants, like the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant, are very familiar to you if you've been a Christian very long. Some covenants, some theological covenants, might be less familiar. Covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. Our passage today in Genesis 15, along with Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, have to do with the Abrahamic Covenant, the covenant with Abraham. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of covenant in just a little bit. But first, we're going to talk about verses 12 to 16 in the divinely ordered progress of our passage. So that brings us to point five. Suffering will precede fulfillment. Verses 12 to 16. Follow along as I read. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold... Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring, okay, again, God's reminding him that he's going to have offspring. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God gives Abraham some details about the land he has promised him here. He tells him it will be a long time before these land promises are fulfilled. It will be a long time before Abraham's descendants inhabit the promised land. 400 years will pass. Oppression in a foreign land. We know that to be Egypt will happen. 
the exodus from Egypt. They will depart that land with great treasure. And God will deliver Abraham's descendants, God's people, out of bondage in Egypt. It will be a long time even after that before that land promise will be completely fulfilled. The last people's name, the last people group's name in the list of people to be displaced are the Jebusites in verse 21. The Jebusites were not subdued for another thousand years after Abraham until David conquered Jerusalem. Evidently, Abraham expected this all to happen very soon. But the Lord is setting him straight and aligning his expectations with what the future holds. Those who followed Jesus thought the same thing. They thought Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God in now. But in Luke 19, Jesus told them a parable when he was coming near to Jerusalem. Why? Verse 11 tells us, because they supposedly thought that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Not only will it be a long time before Abraham's seed is in the promised land, it will be a long, hard time before this promise is fulfilled. This hasn't changed for God's people. In Acts 14.22, the Apostle Paul, shortly after being stoned and left for dead, said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering for God's people is normal. God's covenant people are not spared distress, but are preserved and delivered through it. The Lord will be faithful to his promises and his people, not apart, but rather through the suffering. This adds perspective for Abram. How does this assure you and me? How did it assure Abraham? It's as if the Lord brings up all the threats and difficulties and he lays them out candidly and says essentially, all of this will not keep me from being faithful to you. One thing is clear. We have a God who believes in telling his people the truth. The modern word for it is transparency. In John 16, 1 to 2, on the night before he was crucified, our Lord Jesus told the disciples plainly what would happen. He starts out by saying, I have said all these things. Well, he's referring to John 15. And at the end of John 15, Jesus says, the world's going to hate you. Then he goes on. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Who was Jesus foreshadowing there? We're studying him in Acts right now, aren't we? The Apostle Paul. He thought he was killing Christians in service to God. Well, how's that for a promise of your best life now? 
Our Lord tells us up front what will happen to keep us from falling away when trouble comes. This is a God you can trust. He has hidden nothing from us. Point six. God's deep covenant commitment. Verses 17 to 21. I'm going to read verses 9, 10, and 12 along with 17 to 21 to kind of connect the flow of the story as we begin to look at this next section. Verse 9. He said to him, the Lord said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying... To your offspring, there's that offspring promise again, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Well, the first question that comes to my mind is, what does a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces of these animals mean? How do we interpret this? Well, it clearly has something to do with establishing the covenant spoken of in the very next verse. And as I already mentioned, it's, it's a bit of an ancient custom in, in the ancient world when establishing a covenant. But we can do better than that. The most helpful scripture to give us understanding comes from Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 8 to 22. Now, the Jeremiah passage is a thousand plus years later than Genesis 15. But there is a continuity in symbolism in the Bible that often doesn't change, and I don't think it changes here. In Jeremiah 34, we are told, that just before Jerusalem was about to fall to the Babylonians, some rich Hebrews in the city entered into a covenant to free their Hebrew slaves. I mean, after all, if the Babylonians are going to take over, we just as well let the slaves go. To establish this covenant, Jeremiah 34 reveals that they cut a calf in half and walked between the pieces of the calf. Avis, as if to say, if I'm unfaithful to the covenant, if I'm unfaithful to the covenant I made to free my Hebrew slaves, let the same thing happen to me that happened to this calf. May I be dismembered and destroyed if I do not keep the covenant. Well, guess what? The Egyptians came to the rescue just in time and the Babylonians retreated for a little while. Well, when that happened, guess what the Hebrew rich folks said? Why did we give up our slaves? They were useful to us. So guess what they did? They re-enslaved them once again. They broke their covenant. 
What did the Lord say about this? Here's what he says in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. The man who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. He's going to judge them. In fact, he's going to kill them. And he does. The Lord brought the curse of their covenant upon them for being unfaithful to their promise. That's what I think is going on in Genesis 15. In verse 12, Abraham is passive, so we know where he is. He's sleeping. But in verse 17, we see a smoking pot, a smoking oven, and flaming torch. Well, fire in Genesis, and particularly in Exodus, represents the presence of God. So in our cast of characters, the Lord is the only one left who's not represented. And I think it's clear. The fire here, the smoking pot, represents the Lord. And that's a commonly accepted interpretation. So we have Abraham asleep. We have animals laid out. We have a smoking pot and flaming torch representing the Lord passing between the halves of the animals. And it is as if the Lord is saying, if I don't give you offspring, and if I don't give you the land as I promised, if I don't keep my promises to you, Abraham, what happened to these animals will happen to me. May I be destroyed. May I be dismembered and killed as these animals have been. Well, some might ask, how can you have an eternal God actually be destroyed and killed? Well, I think you're thinking too hard. God is not trying to give Abraham a theological conundrum here. He is not trying to confuse us about the nature of God. Rather, the point is, he's giving Abraham a picture he can latch onto to graphically show Abraham and us how seriously God takes his promises and his covenant. The Lord has given Abram a vivid picture of how faithful he will be. Don't overanalyze it. God is telling Abraham he would rather destroy himself than be unfaithful to his promises. God himself is willing to take upon himself the curse of a covenant as you read it right here in Genesis 15. Well, we who stand under the cross of Jesus know there's more here than is apparent on the surface. I point you to Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14, especially verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ became the curse for us. God said as he passed between the pieces, let the same thing happen to me if I am unfaithful to my promise, to my covenant. But God was never faithless to His promise. Christ never failed to keep the law, and so doing, fulfilled the covenant. 
But we have broken the covenant. We have broken His law. The short version of which is given in Exodus chapter 20. And so the curse of the covenant rests upon us. We are appropriately guilty for our sins. We have broken God's covenant in word, deed, and thought and have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, nor loved our neighbor as ourselves. That's how Jesus summarized God's law. So the curse of the covenant rests upon us. The marvel is that God not only takes the curse of the covenant on himself if he breaks it in Genesis 15, but in the person of his son, he takes our curse for breaking the covenant upon himself and suffers it. Jesus is destroyed, is killed, is murdered, is crucified for our covenant breaking. When we think of God being willing to take the curse of the covenant, even though he didn't break the covenant, we are reminded that in the person of his son, our curse was placed on Christ. In Genesis 15, you can almost see in the scripture the nail-scarred hands of this covenant God who offers himself to you in the covenant blood of Jesus, his son. In light of this, I invite you to contemplate the words of Psalm 22, 1, spoken by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we get to rejoice in and accept the great salvation that is ours in Christ, the covenant curse bearer. Let's pray.